Hey, this is Greg Kokel, author of Tactics, a Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions and the Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. And you're listening to Is He a Real One? Hello out there. This is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio, and I'm now passing the baton off to my man, Veda. Everybody, how are you doing? I am your host of Is He a Ruin Radio. It is Veda Hedgeman, and I am so excited to be here with you all on today. We have a very special guest. We have a very special guest in Michael Holloway, and I will be introducing him shortly. But for right now, we want to welcome you. If you are listening and watching on YouTube, I want to wave at you. If you're looking at my face, if you are listening on iHeartRadio, we want to welcome you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same thing if you're listening on Spotify, if you're listening on iTunes. If you listen on TuneIn or any of the various platforms that the Lord has allowed this program to be on, we want to welcome you and thank you for listening. And we just want to thank you for tuning in. This is part one. This is, I'm super excited about this series, y'all. This is part one of a three-part series where we will be discussing Calvinism, free will, man's choice to reject Jesus. Is there a choice? What is God's plan, etc.? And I always like to say, I really thought about it, you know, while I was putting, while I was putting this, oh, this whole series together, but I like it. I think I'm going to say it all the time. And that's, you may or may not be reformed, but you should certainly be informed. Amen. So uh, I have my brother, Reverend Michael Holloway with us, and he will be given the, he will be given a presentation, a teaching, and his studies on the non-Calvinistic view of scripture. So we'll be interviewing him on this episode. Part two of this episode, we will be interviewing Matt Slick, who will be representing the Calvinistic view. And then they will both be blessing us. We're so super excited to have a doctrinal discussion on this topic and the disagreements uh, that these two awesome teachers may have. And to be clear to anybody listening, the disagreement on this issue is not an essential or salvific issue. Both of these brothers believe in the inerrancy of scripture. They both believe that there are 66 books that are inspired by God. We all agree uh, on salvation by grace through faith alone and the, and the necessity of repentance. It is not by works. We are all firm confessors of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is merely a discussion between brothers and brothers and sisters. In this case, it's all brothers, but this is clear. This is just a discussion between uh, brothers of the faith doing our best to interpret the 66 love letters that our Lord has left us to read. So with that said, I would love to pass the mic to Michael Holloway. Uh, Reverend, Elder, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and we can get started? Bless you, my brother, man. I just want to say thank you, man. I appreciate it. I am always excited to teach or to talk, discuss the word of God. I am Elder Mike Holloway. I'm an elder of Power, Hope, and Grace Bible Church. I'm in the, the, the real D. Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> shouts out to Eminem. That's my favorite rapper ever. You feel me? So right? out. Yes, yeah. sir. Eight mile. Yes, sir. Yeah, eight mile. <laughs> <laughs> I, I live right off seven mile. I was close. Yeah, I was close. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Was you in the you scene? Know? Was you Was you in the scene in the movie when there was a what? No, Everybody? no. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you? <laughs> no. Pre, 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 pre. <laughs> 
I was rapping, but my days were a little before Eminem. I was the Run DMC LL Cool J. You know, I was, the Lord had got to me Holloway. before Eminem came on. <laughs> MC Holloway? What was your name? MC Holloway? Ace, Ace Fresh. Hey! <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, Ace Fresh. <laughs> so I'm excited, bro, man. Just, just love the word of God, man. And pr- appreciate you bringing me on to, to discuss the word of God. All right. Awesome, man. So, you know, with that said, you know, I've already pretty much given everybody the rundown on what this discussion, what this interview will be about. So with that said, let's let's start off with you explaining what your understanding of Calvinism is and what are the parts of it that you might doctrinally disagree with. Got it. Yeah. So Calvinism uh, is it's a theological construct. Right. In other words, it's it's. It's a system that has been developed to explain the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. uh, versus the depravity of men or in relationship to the depravity of men. So they believe God okay. is sovereign. And then because God is sovereign, how does he relate to a man who is uh, totally depraved? And basically, you know, the tenets of Calvinism, you've got the tulip, you've got the T for total depravity, meaning man is incapable of saving himself. He uh, is incapable of any uh, spiritual thought. They do think that the person can do good deeds, but uh, he can't even accept Christ or even hear the gospel, right? Uh, Unconditional election, which means God in eternity past already picked out and determined which people he wanted to save. Right, and then casually passed by all other others. Limited atonement, uh, meaning that uh, Christ, uh, his death is only efficacious for some people. Right, he only died for some people. The atonement is only intended for some people. He never died for the sins of the world. Uh, as such, they use that world to define the elect or those certain mm-hmm. people. Uh, then, which leads to irresistible grace, which meaning if Christ died for you, then in time, at God's appointed time, he will irresistibly draw that person, awaking them to righteousness in a way where they will receive and accept Christ. It's irresistible. They cannot reject uh, Christ nor the gospel if they're elect. And then finally, the perseverance of the saints, which means that once God have elected them, Christ died for them, they've been irresistibly drawn, they will persevere to the end. They will not, nor can they backslide or walk away from the faith. And so in gotcha. a nutshell, that, that's what it is. All right. So so real quick, and also as a FYI, I'm not sure how familiar you are with my program. Sometimes I won't. I might try to jump in before you get too deep because okay. the Lord, because the Lord has blessed us to have theologians who listen to this program and also lay people, you know, who may not be as familiar. So just a heads up, you know, in case I ultimately do that to you. No problem. Now, now, now in that acronym that it, that is, that it, that is an acronym that's often used, you know, when describing Calvinism, the TULIP. Mm-hmm. Now, and a person listening to that, you know, if they're not getting too deep into what all of that means, and you just listening to it, you might go, well, all of that sounds good to me. You know, you know, um, mm-hmm. I believe in God. I don't think I'm ever going to turn away from the faith. And, you know, I'm a persevere, you know, as long as I'm here on this side of heaven or however they decide to word it. Uh-huh. What, what in that that you just explained would be something that you might view differently? And why is it important? Well, it, it sounds good for us who are professing believers, then we would automatically assume we are the elect, 
right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't sound good to most people, right? <laughs> because <laughs> most people are not elect. And therefore, uh, as a result of this system, God himself never intended, neither does he desire the salvation of the majority of people are born. Matter of fact, they are born, Calvin says it this way, doomed from the womb to eternal damnation with mm. no hope of repentance. So yeah, for us, it's like, hey, I'm in, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm covered, but, but my, all my children might not be, right? right? My, all my family might not be my friends. So those are the ramifications that come along with, the, with that belief. Got you. Got you. And you would hold the position that when a person is born, that they do that, that it's not already decided at that point, you know, if they are part of the elect or not. You, you hold the position that they can choose to accept Jesus Christ as Lord of their life, uh, hear the gospel to receive it and to say, well, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Absolutely. Bottom line. And and it's not that God doesn't know. He's omniscient. So he ultimately knows what decision each and every person is going to make in, you know, in time. But God isn't the one who has determined the decision that I make outside Mm -hmm. of time. And so that's the difference. Got you. And I want to get to a couple of scriptures, you know, that support your uh, position. But before we do that, if you could say in just a few sentences, now that we've covered what it is and what you what 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 your uh interpretation of scripture is can you help us understand can, can you just summarize that can you just say this is what i think and this is what calvinism and this is what calvinism teaches before i just want to make sure everybody's following us before we get too deep into certain scriptures and other harder questions gotcha so my view in a nutshell and then what calvinism teaches in a, a quick nutshell right my view yes. first okay got yes. you. yeah so again i believe according to scripture that uh Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him don't have to perish, but have everlasting life. That's my position in a nutshell. It to me is simple, although they would interpret that verse uh, differently. But from a Calvinistic position, God basically has loved the elect. He has not loved everyone. Matter of fact, he doesn't love everyone the same way. He only loves his elect, which are at a certain group, and therefore Christ died for the elect, that when he effectually calls the elect, they will believe, and they are the ones for salvation. And so, and then all others, according to Calvinism, and we can get into that into it later, will justly be sent to hell for their sins, and God has mercy only on his elect. Uh, now, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you good. All right. So I, I, that actually takes me to Romans 5.18. You know, uh, I, I personally like the, the ESV. I do know that many Calvin, Calvinists, particularly when it comes to this verse that I'm about to read, they will prefer the NASB. Mm-hmm. I, do, I, I do have the ESV, though, and I, I'm just going to read Romans 5.18. And it says, therefore, as one trespass led to, condemna- led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men now can you expound can we park there for a little bit and you tell us what you think that scripture is telling us i think man that's a powerful passage so i appreciate you reading it number one it tells us the cause of sin it wasn't by god's decree it wasn't because god predetermined it 
is because one man. How did sin into the world? Not through God's purposes and plans, but by one mm -hmm. man. So seeing into the world. And we do believe that Adam was what we would call our federal head. In other words, Adam represented all of humanity. And therefore, when Adam fell, we being in Adam fell with him. Right. Uh -huh. So that's where the verse goes on to say, therefore, death passed all men for. Right. Uh, scripture right. goes on to say all have sin. But then the act of another man who is Christ Jesus leads to righteousness for all men so to me logically as well as biblically examining the text no one would disagree that every single human being fell in adam but when it comes to the justification that it leads to why wouldn't it be the same all men who fell in adam that could be led to justification to me that's logical as well as biblical but they would say no uh only the elect who he foreordained before the foundation of the world will be led to justification. Hmm. And let's, let's do John 12 and 32. You know, I want, I want to hear your exegesis of that. And that reads, and I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. Now you might read that and go, or a person might hear that and go, okay, well, that sounds pretty clear. You know, uh, you know, now, now mind you, th th those who are listening, who may not be as versed in all of these scriptures and all of these different arguments, you know, it's the, the reason I'm doing this is because, you know, like I said, whether you're reformed or not, you want to be informed, right? You know, so what happens, what happens to some of us is we'll hear somebody who sounds really, really intelligent, uh, represent a position and then we'll just follow them. Like, no, you know, don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to Matt Slick. Don't just listen to Michael Holloway. Don't just listen to whoever your favorite theologian or apologist is. You know, you can hear it, you can hear it, but always go to the Bible, to the word and spend time in study and in prayer yourself. Amen. You know, but with that, but, but, but with that said, you know, John, 1232, you know, one would argue that it sounds pretty plain. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What is, what, what do you, what do you think that scripture is, is saying? Um, I, I'm with you that it is pretty plain and clear. It's a universal drawing that God will do as a result of the death of Christ on Calvary's cross. He died for all people. Therefore, through his death, all men are drawn to himself. The issue for from a Calvinistic perspective is they believe that the drawing or calling of God is efficacious, meaning that you will come. So because all don't come, they logically conclude that all aren't drawn. Because if you're drawn, and then they go to the St. John passage, he'll raise that person up on the last day. So logically, right, and, I, and I'm going to be using that a lot because a lot of a, the Calvinistic construct is a, is a logical construct. And, th and that's really one of the big appeals to Calvinism, some smart guys, man, who, who right. hold to Calvinism. And the system is very logical. Uh, it's very well organized and structured, and it appeals to the intellect of an individual, and it draws people in that way. However, from my perspective, when we examine the logical conclusions versus the biblical explicit statements, it can't, it can't, they both can't stand together. As you said, this verse says, draw all men to myself. There's no way for me to philosophically 
reinterpret that into the system. And I think that's part of the problem. From a Calvinist position, often scripture is read into the system, opposed to allowing the scripture to become the system. So this is for all men, completely for me. Okay, well, well, well let me push back a little bit, though, sure. because... Because when we look at uh, some of the Old Testament scripture, for for instance, uh, the 115th Psalm, verse 3, you know, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And if God desires for all men to be saved and then all men are not saved, does that mean that God is not doing what he pleases? Or does that mean that God is not successful in trying to save everybody? How do you respond to that? That's a great question. That's actually something that's often brought up by many Calvinists. So God does what he pleases. And often that verse is interpreted to mean that all things that happen must be what he pleases. So if a person doesn't get saved, God is doing what he pleases. If a person does get saved, God is doing what he pleases. Well, again, we got to think logically the ramifications. If a person sins, God is doing what he pleases, right? Mm -hmm. Adam fell by God's doing what he pleases. So when we examine the full context of scripture, so the whole of scripture, right? So Psalm chapter number five tells us that he takes no pleasure in wickedness. So the, the text is clear. He isn't pleased with wickedness. So yes, God does what he pleases. That does not mean that he is pleased with all things because man, we don't always do what he pleases. <laughs> so right. that's the difference. So yet God is doing what he pleases, but don't interpret that to mean that God is predetermining everything that happens and everything is what he, what pleases him. He's not pleased with iniquity. He's the scripture says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So mm -hmm. he, he's not getting everything that he pleases. He does what he pleases Right. And one of the things that pleased him was to give man the ability to choose whether or not to serve him or not. But he's not pleased when man chooses not to serve him. Hmm. So so he, he does what he pleases. Why do you think he won't just make everybody saved then if that's the if that's the case? Well, so and that's a great question. And, and that goes like some people will say, well, hey, man, why did he even put the tree in the garden in the first place? <laughs> yeah, right, you know right. what I'm saying? For Adam to fall. You know, he must have he must have wanted him to. Well, that's an illogical conclusion. All of Scripture shows us that God desires man. Just think about the very first commandment in the law. Uh -huh. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. So mind and strength. Yes, right. God can make us do what he want to do, right? But mm -hmm. so he, he could have just made a bunch of robots, but that's not what right. he pleases. He was right. pleased in Genesis 1. We try to help people and say, listen, watch this. God, when he created all the works of his hands, he created Adam, blew into his nostrils, the breath of life in the garden. Scripture says this, let him have dominion. You know what that means? I'm going to give him the ability to make decisions, to have rulership, to mm. govern. So Adam was given that dominion from God. Now, it wasn't uh, without God's sovereignty because God gave him parameters on how to lead. Adam failed, not God. That wasn't God's plan for Adam to fall. Mm. So, so what about, say, like decrees from God? Like, does God have a plan in all of this, if that's the case? Because one of the one of the uh, arguments in Calvinism is that, okay, whether we like the way it sounds or not, Calvinism does have 
an answer to saying God does have a plan. It is this. All of this happened and it is to give God glory. So with a non-Calvinistic view of scripture, what is God's plan in doing all of this? Man, that's now we're really getting to the meat of it. So I appreciate the way the conversation is going. Because really, it all starts with the divine decrees. So really, okay. now the decrees are the meat of it. Before total depravity, before unconditional election, before everything, God decreed everything that comes to pass. And, and, and I want to make it clear. He decreed that Adam would fall. He decreed the fall of all. What does decree the- mean? I, I know I'm the I'm the I know I'm the first one who used the word, so I should have defined yeah, it. But no problem. Hour. What does decree mean? Sure. So so Strong's would define decree as the eternal plan by which God has rendered certain all the events of the universe, past, present, and future. So okay. from the Calvinist position, they believe that God rendered all events certain. You know what I mean? There was a certainty. So that doesn't sound like a bad statement. So we do know God knows all things and nothing happens. And and I would agree with this statement here. Nothing happens that catches God by surprise. Nothing happens that God hasn't planned for and he doesn't know that it's coming. Right. Right. But that does not necessitate God planning the decision that I make. If God knows, not learn, because he, he's all-knowing, but if God knows that I'm going to sin, within his plan, knowing my sin, he could plan my deliverance in Christ. So absolutely God has a plan. His plan is what it always has been, and that is to have fellowship with man in paradise, which is the state that Adam was in. Adam blew that. God is restoring that. And again, in the end, God will have fellowship with man in a state of paradise, right? That's God's plan. And that Mm -hmm. Christ was in the plan because God foreknew that Adam and all of humanity would need a savior. So God being all-knowing within his foreknowledge and predeterminate counsel, Christ died for us. And so God, he, he does all things, but to, to impose the sins of man to what God determined, a Calvinist would say he can do it in a way where he's not responsible. I, I've never understood it, but they'll mm-hmm. tell you, well, that's the mysteries of God. Uh, those are the secret things belong to God. And for me, that's just a way of saying, you don't have an answer. You can't, <laughs> for me, a holy God will not decree that I, commit fornication or commit adultery or lie. No, he knows that I will and he's planned for it in Christ, right? But they don't mm-hmm. like that. That makes it seem like God is reactive and not proactive. That That's actually exactly what I was about to say. I was going to say, well, what do you say to if we hear this and we go, okay, well, that sounds all good. That makes a lot of sense, but it sounds mm-hmm. like God is a responsive God, like he's playing catch up to what me and you do. Even though he can see it from the very beginning, he's still playing catch up. How do you respond to that? And that's a great question. He's not playing catch up because the fact that he knew it, Christ was slain for it before I committed to act. So so he's, he's still ahead of us at all times. Christ has purchased our salvation God planned his death, burial, and resurrection before Adam even fell. So nobody's playing catch up. God has just 
uh, such a God uh, that is so sovereign that even man's wicked and bad decisions don't offset his purposes and plan. And he don't have to get his hands dirty to bring it about. He's still holy. All right, preacher. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. I get it. Hey, no, don't apologize. I do the same thing. Somebody asked me to do a presentation on the resurrection. They'd be like, "Just go straight classical apologetics." I'm somehow, some way, you know, it's, it's gonna come out. You, know? you can't talk out. about what Christ did without getting a little happy. Doc. Right, 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 right. I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Right. Uh, all right, so I, I want to uh, go over uh, a scripture, and I kind of want to uh, hear your take on it. Right now, I'm going I'm to go to the book of Colossians chapter 2, all right? Sure, yes, sir. And I really want to focus on verse 14, but I'm going to start at 13. Okay. Because, okay, so, and, and it reads, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us for all our trespasses. All right. Sound good so far. Most believers going to hear that and go and get happy like you just said, right? Absolutely. But here we go. But verse 14 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. My mm -hmm. question to you is, what was set aside when he was nailed to the cross? What was forgiven at the cross? It says that something was reconciled at the cross. What was that? Absolutely. So all humanity, as we talked about, fell in Adam all of us, even in our own personal lives, right? According to Romans mm -hmm. chapter three, all have sinned. So we can't even just blame Adam. Romans, uh, I think chapter five says, even those that have not sinned at, in the similitude of Adam's transgression, we all sinned, right? So we were all law breakers. And therefore the commandment was against us because the law says, if you're guilty in one, uh, I'm sorry, if you offend in one point, then you become guilty of all. And so mm -hmm. those were the commandments, the handwritings that were against each and every person because of our sin and our fallen nature. Mm -hmm. God in Christ nailed that to the cross. In other words, he took that penalty for us. He became the ransom, the lamb who was sacrificed for our sins. And those sins were set aside. In other words, we were forgiven for those sins at the cross, right? Forgiveness was made available at the cross. That That is a great exegesis of that. I don't think, based on how I heard that, I don't think most Calvinistic um, um, folks would disagree with what you just said, you know, but, but it, it, but I think the pushback would be, it doesn't say this he set aside if you accept the free gift, nailing it to the cross. That's not what it says. It says he set aside all the stuff that you just said. You just said that beautifully. He said all that aside, beautifully, nailing it to the cross. It doesn't say he set it aside, you know, for in case you accept that free gift. Gotcha. So, so that's why we have to understand context when we're reading scripture so we have paul right. writing to the Rome, to the colossian church saints who have already repented and and there are verses that focus on what god did for us then uh -huh. there are verses that focus on what we must do right when the jailer in acts chapter number 16 asked the apostle paul a question 
you know, after he was about to kill himself and Paul said, Hey, stay your hand, man. Hold up. We still here. You good. Right. Mm -hmm. Jared right. comes in trembling, afraid. Hey man, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, Hey, don't worry about it. It's already set aside. No, he didn't. He said, repent. Right. Believe on the Lord. Well, actually what he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household. So there are texts that, are explicitly explaining God's role, then there are texts that explicitly explain our role. You can't exalt one role above the other. They're both necessary. Forgiveness only comes through repentance. Acts chapter number three, Peter said, repent that your sins may be forgiven in the day of refreshing. So, so repentance, repent that you your sins may be washed away. Repentance brings about forgiveness. You cannot jump over repentance, get forgiven, what, then there's nothing to repent for now if you've mm. already been forgiven. I hear you. Okay, but what about those who will say, I, I haven't read anywhere in the Bible where someone with authority said to someone, if you do, you do this because Christ died for you, you know, like in a reactive way. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think we do see passages and, I, and, and I'll give you a couple examples of those. So, so in Acts, um, Acts chapter number two, right? Peter is preaching, and I'm going to go here real quick. Okay. Peter, Peter is preaching in Acts chapter number two, the gospel, right? Starting at verse mm -hmm. 22, and I won't read it all, but he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having mm. loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then he goes on to talk about David. David said, you know, my soul, you know, shall not I mean, shall rest in hope. My flesh shall rest in hope. He won't leave my soul in hell, nor will you suffer the Holy One to see corruption. He's talking about the resurrection here. Then he says, listen, David wasn't talking about himself because his grave is still with us to this day. This man is still buried. But he being a prophet, verse 30, knowing that God has sworn that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus God have raised up, up of which we are all witnesses and peter goes on preach quote a few more scriptures and then they say well man what should we do now he's already gave them the resurrection he's already mm -hmm. told them that what christ did for them right but then they said what shall we do guess what don't worry about it he didn't peter didn't say don't worry about it. it's already been set aside you good no repent and be baptized every one of you for remission of sin and really contextually the verse is saying repent for the remission of sins in other words the very fact that your sins are remitted. Repentance brings about the, the remission of sins. He wasn't in no way claiming that the water takes away the sins, but through repentance, your sins have been washed away. Be baptized. Identify yourself with baptism. And so here we have it clearly. And I'll just quote one more verse in, in chapter three of Acts, the very last verse, verse 26. Watch this. He says, to you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you, watch this part, 
in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, contextually, these men walked away and didn't repent. But Peter said what? Christ came to turn every one of you away from your iniquities. That doesn't mean they accepted it. Right? Mm. But to me, the text is explicitly clear. You can't fight the text. Okay. Now, now, when, all of that sounds beautiful. You know, it it is one point I like to push back on that. Sure. Because because you know how you said, well, you know, Peter or people who these preachers who are preaching don't say, oh man, it's already good. You know, if you if you're the elect, you're the elect. Because Calvinist preachers and teachers today in 2020 don't preach like that. They preach no. the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and if you are part of the elect, you will hear it and you will cease living a life that is rejecting Jesus Christ, either at that point or at some point before you die on this side because you are part of the elect. So when you say that, it, it makes sense. But I think a Calvinist teacher would go, hey, I'm a Calvinist teacher. I preach and teach the gospel all the time. And I don't mm -hmm. say that either. And that's that's a fact. That's facts. And and that's why Calvinists, they are our brothers. You know, so this, mm -hmm. as you so wonderfully brought out earlier, it's not a matter of one group being saved and one group not being saved. Calvinists preach the gospel. They will preach the death, burial, and rest. Some of some powerful preachers at that, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The problem, though, is that their <laughs> doctrine doesn't fit the gospel. I'm just being real, and I'm going to tell you mm -hmm. why. Because here's okay. what has to happen. Here's what has to happen in the Calvinistic construct. So I'm the sinner. Okay. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I can't respond because I'm dead. And they, they use caricatures like a man in a tomb, you know, the skeletons right. and a dead man can't respond. Right. So here, what God has to do for me is make me alive first. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Right. Now think about it. The curse of sin was death. And many would say spiritual death as well as natural death. Okay, right. Follow God me. removes the curse and makes me alive. So I can respond. But here's the, prop, the part that I have a major problem with. God removes the curse and makes you alive before you have faith in the cross, mm. which makes you alive. <laughs> so now the cross becomes a byproduct. It, it, it's, not the, it's, it's not the blood that redeems you. No, God basically woke you up, redeemed you from the curse. Then uh, subsequently, yeah, okay, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But he's already lifted you. He's already made you alive. That's the problem for me. So no, no, you've got to repent before you are born again. They think you have to be born again, then repent. That's backwards to me. No, you're not made alive before you trust in the life giver who is Jesus Christ. That's a, a serious theological flaw in their construct. You can't be made alive before the life giver. I heard that. So what about what what about when you're questioned about if a if a man or a woman you know can change their mind about being saved you know if it you know if they had the free choice to to accept Jesus Christ as Lord of their life and Savior of their life and saving them from their sin you know mm -hmm. can they can they change their mind you know ten years later five years later twenty years later can they just change their mind like I was saved but I'm deciding to not be saved no more well here here's the thing I believe 
that a person who has truly been impacted by the gospel will endure to the end. He will persevere. That's my position. You don't have to have a Calvinist construct to accept that. It, but for us, it's the gospel who has impacted your life. For a Calvinist, it's because God wrote your name down and you ain't going nowhere because he pre-selected you. You know what I'm saying? Right. I, you got you. You already wrote your name down. You know, before you even seen you, I put a post up the other day from Arthur Pink who said that the sinner who's elect never really even fell away from God. He, he really never lost his place. To me, that's not Bible. No, we were all children of wrath. We were all separated from the uh, commonwealth of Israel. We were without Christ, with no hope in the world. And without Christ, all of us were lost. But from a Calvinistic construct, yeah, but not really because I was elect. Right. The problem with that, one more quick point, the problem with that is the election took place before, before we sinned. So when God decided who he wasn't going to save, it wasn't even because of the sin. I mean, I just didn't want to save you. But at the end, I'm going to blame it on your sins, but I decided hmm. not to save you before sin even came into the world. Hmm. Now, with that said, as it pertains to sin and various types of evil, although although you have beautifully elocuted, you know, God's decree and his purpose and all that. But would you say that we live in a world where there is purposeless evil, you know, because it, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, like, would you yes. say that the evil is purposeless? Yes. God is sovereign. Yes. God has a decree. Yes. God uh, can fix things in my life and your life in the world, especially when it comes to eternity, but is evil itself that is within time. Is it purposeless? Man, that's a great question because that's, that, that's a common question. Matter of fact, um, to quote James White, and maybe not verbatim, but I'm going to do my best. Basically, if God hasn't decreed or determined the evil, then the evil is purposeless. Mm -hmm. That's a false dilemma. Like, like they can't, there's not another option. Like, either God decreed it or it's purposeless. Like, no, that this, yeah. you, you, he's created a false dilemma. And when they only give you those two options, of course, you're like, well, man, if those are the only two things I can choose from, then God must have decreed it. You know what I'm saying? But, but right. that's a false dilemma that they create within their construct that the text doesn't necessarily bear out. No, the, the text tells us that God has no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. He doesn't decrease evil. No, not at all. However, he's sovereign. And according to Romans chapter number eight, he works. He actively works all things for the good, for those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So I can make a ill-advised decision and go out right now, get drunk, get into a car accident, foolishly. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. that God said, yeah, let me decree that Mike do this, but I'm going to do it in a way where they can't blame me. What? No, what? no, that doesn't make sense. That isn't biblical to me. But... In the midst of it, God can work it for my good and the good of my family. And of course, there are consequences to every sin, but God is so sovereign that I can be as wicked as I want to be and it won't affect his plan. His purposes won't be thwarted. A Calvinist says everything I, have, I do must be his plan. That's absolutely wrong. In Luke chapter number seven, I think around verse number 30 or 31, Jesus tells the Pharisees that you reject the purpose of God for your life not being baptized by John. So you can reject the purpose of God, but you won't you cannot stop his ultimate purpose. Mm. So how do you, so, okay. Uh, 
Awesome. Uh, awesome work. Awesome work. And I, I know I don't have you for too much longer. I want to get to a, a couple other scriptures in case there's someone listening and they're sure. like, wow, this guy, Elder Holloway, sounds like he knows his stuff. I'm sold. I, I don't have a Calvinistic view of scripture at all. I'm mm-hmm. rolling with him. Right. I, I got a couple of scriptures for you, uh, sure. for, for yes, you sir. and for those, <laughs> for you and for those, you know, because yes, I would like. I would like to know how you reconcile your position with John chapter six, verse 44 yes. in particular, where it says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. I know you touched on that in answering one of my earlier questions, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. this is Jesus talking, correct? Correct. Okay. So this is Jesus talking and Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me, the father who sent the son Mm-hmm. draws the man or the woman draws the human to me exactly how do you reconcile that scripture with your position god is drawing and you read the scripture earlier in saint john chapter number 12 where jesus said if i be lifted up i will draw all men unto me or to myself so mm-hmm. god is drawn i won't argue with a calvinist there okay god is drawing but then they'll say ha ah, but but see what god's going to do He's going to raise them up at the last day. So they, uh, so, so they have to insert something the text doesn't say. And here's what's inserted. So if you don't come, evidently you're not drawn because if you're drawn, you will come and you will be saved because God's going to raise him up on the last day. That's a illogical conclusion. And there's a couple of things, and I don't want to get too deep here. You can Go ahead. So, I, I want to park. I want to park. Feel free. Get deep. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, first and foremost, we got to understand the context of St. John. People, it, it amazes me, uh, and these are some brilliant minds, but it amazes me how you can read a, a book and take a verse out of it and apply it to a current time that it doesn't apply to. Jesus, John chapter number one, he sets the stage for the context. He came unto his own, Mm -hmm. and his own received him not. Jesus was speaking to a Jewish culture who were the covenant people of God, waiting for the coming Messiah. When Christ came, they were supposed to recognize him, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. In, in chapter five, Jesus tells them, had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. We don't say, now if I go on seven mile and try to witness uh, to someone, I'm not going to say, have you, had you believed Moses, you would have believed Christ. Why? That doesn't apply to a 21st century Gentile in the hood. Uh, that right. applies to an Israelite within a Jewish construct. So Christ being revealed to Israel, he was the genuine Jews who were believers before he came, identified who he was, and were drawn to him by the Father. Those who were not genuine, now all of them were raised on Torah, they, they, were, they learned the, 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 the law and the prophets, but the ones that were not his people, not genuine converts, they rebelled. And so that's the context. So we can't pull John chapter six out and try to apply it to every sinner today because it doesn't apply. But I'm going to read one verse here and then in verse 40 in the same chapter, 
And mm-hmm. this is the will of him who sent me. This is before we get to 44, right? So we got to read it all. In verse 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who, watch this, sees the son. Now, that's, that's, that's mm-hmm. literal. Now, I've never seen him physically. I'm just going to be, I've never seen him. I know some folks think they do, they have. I mean, I think they lying, but, but I've never seen him. Everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up in the last day. So again, it's to a Jewish culture who should have seen this is the Messiah that Moses talked about, that God would raise up a prophet like unto him. This is the one that all the prophets pointed to. He's the branch that was come. He's the one who, who the Savior, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and they should have embraced him. Instead, his own received him not. When you understand the backdrop or the context, then you can read the rest of the passages in the proper light. But we can, anybody can go in here and grab a scripture out and, and use it anywhere they want. That's out of context. And unfortunately, uh, many of my Calvinist brothers do that. They read these passages in a 21st century Western mindset without applying the cultural context to exegete these texts properly like they should be read. Awesome. Awesome. Now, we could uh, go through, through, you know, almost any verse, you know, in Romans chapter nine, you know, but yes. I'm going to just, I'm going to just read 15 and 16 uh-huh. and you can respond to that. But if you want to pull anything else in Romans nine and, and respond to it, that's yes, fine. Sir. You know that that's fine. But I, I would like to read Romans chapter nine verses 15 and 16. And I would like for you to reckon, uh, teach how you reconcile your position with these verses. And the Bible says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation depends on not on human will, not on Vader's will, not on Michael Holloway's will or exertion, but on God. Salvation is on God who has mercy. How do you reconcile those scriptures with your teaching? Thank you, man. That, that again, is one of the popular verses or actually popular passages. They use a couple more in here that the Calvinists take. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So they think mm-hmm. that, or, or not all, and, and let me say this too. When I'm making these statements, it, each statement may not apply to every Calvinist. So I, I don't want to misrepresent anybody and yeah. paint with a broad brush, but, so I'm, but I'm speaking for the general popular view. Okay, so, but the text, the same way in John, let me show you, it has to be understood contextually. When you, okay. when you bring those two verses out and apply them to every single individual, see, it's not on you, it's on God. So if God want to have mercy on you, he will. If you want to have compassion on you, he will. If you want to harden you, he will. That's out of context. Now, All right. the, the context, we go back to verse one. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Verse three, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are the Israelites. So here's the context in a nutshell. You know, I don't want to take a whole lot of time because I know we may not have a lot of time. Now we can take your time. Israel is Israel is in view here by the apostle Paul. He's grieving 
because they have rejected Christ and currently as a nation, not every individual, because Paul was an Israelite and other Israelites did believe Christ, but as a nation, Israel was in a state of rejection. They rejected Christ. And Paul is saying, this is why I have continual grief in my heart. So that has to be understood. Prior to chapter nine, as we read in Romans chapter, as we can read in Romans chapter three, four, five, even chapter two, Paul is saying that the Gentiles who were not circumcised were accepted because they did by nature uh, the law not being circumcised. In other words, God is now accepting the Gentile. So the whole premise, when once we get to chapter number nine, is well, what about Israel? Israel is rejected and being hardened while Gentiles are being accepted. That's the context, and I'm going to show you that. So then that's when he goes on to say, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Jacob, who is Israel, he's showing, Paul is painting the picture. I elected Israel. I chose Israel. It wasn't about Israel's will. God chose Israel above all the other nations. Now, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say for salvation, but that's mm. often inserted. He chose Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, but Israel failed. So as we bring it up, you know, just to, to nutshell it, it is Israel being hardened. That's, and, and the Gentiles receiving mercy. That's mm. the context. And so when he says, I can have mercy on whom I will, he's answering the supposed question from an Israelite saying, uh, you know, why do you find fault? You know, nobody rejects your purpose and will, but but Israel did reject it. I'm going to show you that in this same chapter, right? Okay. Chapter nine, jump all the way down. And I'm, I'm jumping a lot of hoops here, but I've done some extensive teaching on this. Right. Amen. Do your thing. That, that's why we wanted you. Oh, bless you, my brother. I'm, all right. Now watch this. Verse number 30. Okay. What the, what shall we say then? So he's summing up chapter nine. Now I'm going to show you something in chapter 11. What? Because nine, 10, and 11 go together. All scholars and even Calvinists would agree that nine, 10, and 11 go together. But watch, watch what he says here in verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, not Mike and not Veda, uh, Joe, but not Bob, Jack, but not Jill. No, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they have attained the righteousness, mm. right? Even the righteousness of faith. Verse 31, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. So the Gentiles were getting the mercy and the Jews are the ones that were being hardened. It wasn't about individually God saying any, many, miny, you, catch a elect battle. No, no, he wasn't doing that, right? That wasn't the purpose. He's talking about two nations. He's rejecting Israel now because of their rejecting for Christ. And, and, and that's temporary. So let me finish verse 31. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Not because they weren't elect, not because they weren't chosen, because they did not seek it by faith. Mm. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. But here's to show you that the context is not dealing with some people who were eternally just non-elect. Israel here, remember, he, they didn't obtain. But jump all the way to chapter number 11. And chapter number 11, because he's on the okay. same subject. Uh -huh. 
Verse number 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, Israel, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You notice how he's, he's talking about Israel versus Gentiles, not Mike versus John, yeah. being elect or non-elect. Right, now notice what he says in verse 12. Now, if the fall is the riches of the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles and as much as I'm apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, right? If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, the Israelite, and save some of them. Now these brothers are being hardened. So this isn't talking about some eternal pre-decree uh, non-elect. Paul's still talking about saving these brothers who were broken off. That's why he goes on just to jump a couple fences here that in verse 19 says, you will say the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Watch why they were broken off. Not because they were non-elect, verse 19, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Now watch this. Now don't you be haughty but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either, Gentiles. Mm. Right? Yeah. Watch this. Verse 23. And they also, this is the part I wanted to get to, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. How are you going to graft the non-elect in? How are you going to graft somebody who got hardened back in in mm. a Calvinistic construct? No. God is able to graft them in again. And he sums it up. One more verse. I'm just going to jump down. He sums up okay. the whole thing. Verse number, uh, let me read verse 31. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, Gentiles, they, Israelites, also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all man wow I feel like preach <laughs> <laughs> man that's a man we could we could close on that but i i have one more verse for you uh yes, to sir, go no, over. no problem doc <laughs> we, we could do that 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 was that that, that was you, you did that all yes, right so 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 last but not least last but not least i'm going to ask you to reconcile uh your teaching with ephesians chapter 2 Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 10, all right? Amen. And it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm, I'm gonna read that. I'm gonna read that again, you know, yes, because there's been a lot of scriptures, you know, you just broke down Romans nine through 11 yes, and you did that. So maybe people listening, I don't want y'all to miss this because I know you're probably going to break this down the way you just broke down Romans nine. So no I'm gonna read this again. Y'all, if y'all listening, follow me. This is the word of God saying for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus y'all for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is Paul talking to fellow human beings. This is not your own doing that you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. So you can't brag about being saved. You can't brag about being elect, whatever the word elect means to you in your mm-hmm. doctrinal, your doctrinal theology. You can't brag about it. God mm-hmm. did it, right? right? So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. God prepared this, us to do good works in his name beforehand. Yes. So, so that we should walk in them. Take the floor. Amen. Powerful passage, man. I am in 100% agreement. We have been saved through faith. I want you to keep that in mind because remember when we read it in um, uh, Galatians, no, no, I'm, I'm thinking about my Bible class teaching, but uh, <laughs> in, in, in Romans, right? Paul brings out that Abraham believed God uh-huh. and it was counted unto him for righteousness, not of works, but of faith. So faith is not a work. That's clear. Faith is not a work. It is not a meritorious act that we can that we can uh, perform and brag about. Faith is not a work. So we are saved. It is the work of God. No man saves himself. God does the saving, but he does it through the vehicle of faith. That okay. not of ourselves. Now, the Calvinists, current Calvinists, will tell you, nah, see, that faith was a gift, right? God had to give you faith before you can act in faith. Um, but even John Calvin, in his uh, commentary on Ephesians, says that the gift is salvation. By grace are we saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That that salvation is not of ourselves. And Paul even says in Romans that the gift of salvation, right? And so faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So God does the saving, but he does it through faith. We still have to exercise faith. We can't boast in faith because faith is not a meritorious work. It adds no merit to our salvation. Uh-huh. But, but we believe God. And, and remember, man put in the chapters and verse numbers, right? Let's right, just right. go back a little bit real quick to chapter number one, the end of chapter number one, or closer to the end of chapter Before one. You, I'm wait, sorry, go ahead. You, you, no, you you about to you about to do that. I want you to do that. But for anybody who's listening who didn't catch what he just said, I need you to catch this because it really uh, emphasizes his point when he says that man added the chapters and verses. You got to think if I write you a letter that's five, six, ten pages, two pages, however long it is, I'm not going to separate a whole bunch of sentences. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do that. It's just going to be a long page. If I write it on a scroll, it's going to be a long scroll or multiple scrolls. That is how the book in the Bible were originally written. However, over time, in order for help uh, people like us to be able to exegete God's holy word, it's easier for us to find it. You know, how else would I find Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 if it wasn't addressed that way? You know, know, it it, it would take us 50 minutes just to get to this scripture, you know, and, and do that. So the reason why that's important is because when when Bible verses are separated by chapters and by verses, again, that is for us to be able to, to more quickly identify certain scriptures that are in God's word. So 
Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10, it, it's not necessarily separate. It's not necessarily separated from the third, fourth and fifth chapters. When Paul wrote it or the scribe scribed it, you know, they were just writing. Okay. They were just writing. It's no different than if I have a third paragraph in my essay and then someone wants to quote the 18th paragraph that's on the sixth page. All right. So mm -hmm. that's the context as far as us reading this and he's going to, uh, I, I don't know if you were going to chapter one or what, yes, but that's the context. One. And I thought that was important to explain as yeah. you're, uh, as, as you're going to another chapter. So I'm sorry, brother, go ahead. No, that's good, man. I appreciate you breaking that down. Uh, excellent. Um, but look at chapter one, verse 13. Now this is before he gets to what he says in what we call chapter two. He says, in him, you also trusted after you heard. Notice this, Lord have mercy. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So here, Paul is making it clear that these individuals, and I think actually this verse is, I think is directed toward the Gentiles. And I'm gonna show you that in just a second. We're gonna jump back up to verse eight in a minute. But notice he says, after you heard the word of truth, then you believed, then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So he's not circumventing this in chapter two. He's already established this. Because again, if we again, this is why we always should read chapters and books to get full context. Because again, anybody right. can get snatch a verse out and build. That's why we got 300, 500 plus uh, denominations because people <laughs> are building right. doctrines on portions of text and not the whole, right? He's already established that they trusted after they, after they heard, not after they were made alive, right? After they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, they believed they were sealed, right? With the Holy Spirit of promise. Now let's jump back up. I wanted to make that clear to just to show that Paul already established how they individually received salvation. They heard, they trusted, they believed, they were sealed. He's already established that. Now he's focusing here on what God did. That's why in verse four, he says, but God who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together. Now this is what a Calvinist would say. See, God had to make you alive first before uh -huh. you can believe, but that's not what this verse says. It doesn't say made us alive together, then we believe. We already covered that in chapter number one, verse number 13, after they heard trusted, believed, were sealed, right? Mm -hmm. So now Paul is focusing on God's work. He made us alive. We're sitting together with Christ. By grace are we saved, right? Uh, through faith. And it's not of ourselves. Salvation is not, none of us could merit our salvation. There was nothing we could do to earn our salvation. Why? It is a gift of God. None of us deserve salvation. It isn't because, oh, I had so much faith. No. Faith came right. by the word of God. Faith come yeah. by hearing, not of yeah. works, lest any man should boast. Now, let me get to that other point you mentioned about being prepared beforehand. This is what predetermination is. Okay. God has predetermined the body of believers to something. He's not hey, saying, quick, uh, go ahead. 
and, and real quick, y'all, just so y'all know. So he he broke down eight and nine and made the connection from something that Paul was saying earlier in his letter to bring this in layman terms earlier in his essay. You know, mm-hmm. please forgive me, theologians, if y'all don't like that analogy, you know. <laughs> you know, and he's and, and he made and he made those connections. And now he's going back to verse 10, which is for the sake of this particular conversation, probably the more problematic verse uh, yeah. where it says God prepared this beforehand that we should walk in them. So, again, sorry for cutting you off, but I just wanted no. to bring that full circle as you are exegeting verse 10, where it says God prepared beforehand. Thank you. No, great job. Uh, so what was prepared before him? Let's read verse 10 again. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? What was predetermined? What was prepared beforehand? That the body of believers would walk according to God's plan. Those good works that he prepared beforehand. It's almost like... Um, and this analogy may not be perfect, but it, it, it's it, it's almost like if I am hiring for um, a, a chauffeur to chauffeur me around, right? Mm-hmm. I have determined that the chauffeur would walk in the way that I would have him walk. He would drive and carry me to where I need to go. Those would be his good works. It doesn't say and doesn't mean, and in the Jewish concept that, Paul is being a Jew, he's speaking in the context of being a Jew. When God chose Israel, he chose the whole nation. <laughs> they were his elect people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he and, and in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe chapter number six, he talks about that he called them to walk in love. That's what they were determined to walk in. Now, every individual didn't walk that way, which is ended up they rejected. Right. Right. But that is what God prepared beforehand for them to walk in. And so that this in no way is saying that each individual has been predetermined for salvation, because notice he didn't say that here in verse number 10. We're prepared. The works were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the chauffeur will drive the car because those are the responsibilities that I prepared beforehand before he was hired. Now, he still had to meet the qualifications to be retired, uh, to be hired. Rather, the, the qualifications for the believer, though, is just that just to believe. So we don't work for it. But that's what the prerequisite is that we come to faith, that we believe in Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, Paul is really, the last point here, he's speaking to the Gentiles in this text, I believe. And I'm going to show you that. If you just read the very next verse, 11, therefore remember that you... Is that what verse 11 say? Yes, sir. Once Gentiles in the flesh. Right. Right. So, So the whole concept, and we'll see this throughout the book of Acts, Paul is bringing the gospel to Gentiles who at one time, and he says that right here, verse 12, that you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's telling Gentiles that God already planned that you also would walk 
in the way that he has called you. His purpose was never just for the Jew, but it was also for the Gentiles. When we take a West, and I call it this, a Western approach to scripture, it's all about me. He chose me, you know, he yeah. saved me, he, he, yeah. he, he, he loved me. But the text is always speaking in a corporate manner, just as Israel was called corporately, but not every one of them made it in. Wow. The Gentiles corporately have been called by God for salvation, but each person still has to come to faith. See, this is about, the, and, and so when you back up and view the text in the scope of what Paul was dealing with, Paul was dealing with Gentiles who were formerly lost, now being given life and coming to faith. Today in the 21st century, we say, no, nah, that must just be the elect. That's not what the text is talking about at all. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, for those, for those who are listening, those who are listening, I want y'all to know that in part two of this, when I'm when I'll be interviewing Matt Slick, I will be interviewing him the very same way. You know, my prayer, my intention is that my view on scripture, Calvinistic and I Calvinistic, isn't necessarily abundantly clear in how I'm conducting these interviews. Because when I interview Matt Slick and he explains something really well, I'm gonna say, Awesome job, brother. You did that. My mm -hmm. goodness check you out and i'm going to push back same way how i've pushed back or said hey i got to push back on this i have a challenging question on this here are some challenging questions i'm going to do the same thing to him and just so you can know the specificity as it relates to the doctrinal discussion that holloway and slick will have next week what you see how we went through romans 9 and we just went through ephesians 2 what those conversations will be, it will basically be us parking at certain scriptures and these two men will have 10 to 20 minutes to focus on each scripture. So we won't be able to talk about every single thing that a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist will, uh, will agree and disagree on, but we will take certain scriptures that they might interpret differently or slightly differently. And we are going to discuss that. For instance, we just heard how Michael Holloway, uh, broke down Romans nine and he, you know, you know, Matt Slick might start a little bit at, at the end of Romans eight and then go in there. But you heard how Michael Holloway broke that down. Matt Slick will then have an opportunity to respond and it will be a conversation, a doctrinal discussion on each of these scriptures. We'll, we'll probably only have time to go through about five or six because the scriptures that we do talk about, we want to spend some time on, but that is what uh, this is going to be. So You've heard this conversation, this interview with, with Elder Holloway, Michael Holloway. Brother, you did an amazing job. You did Bless a you. great job. You know, I think you really blessed us. You broke some stuff down. You know, you took your time with it and you went deep. And And I pray that, again, you know, if someone agrees uh, with your interpretation of scripture, that they feel strengthened. If they don't agree with it, that they are at least more equipped with, with a non-Calvinistic understanding and something mm -hmm. that they may consider, or at least just be a more learned Bible reader 
and or a teacher. And if a person is like, I don't really know what I think yet, I'm still learning. You know, I'm very confident that they've been blessed uh, by this conversation. And I really just want to thank you so much for your time. Is it anything that you want to uh, mention? Is it any, uh, as it relates to this topic, you know, that you want to make sure you mention something that I didn't get a chance to ask or something that you didn't get a chance to mention or something that you, maybe you mentioned, but you want to highlight a little bit? Is it anything to that nature? Well, I, I think you covered it well, man. You did an awesome job yourself interviewing and you, you knew, the, you've done your homework too, I see, because you knew the scriptures, you knew what, you know what questions to ask. And so I appreciate you. You know, if I could just say, if I would say one last thing, it would simply be that again, it, from a Calvinistic construct, it starts with the decrees of God. And so they believe that the decrees are efficacious. So if God decreed to fall and everything else happened as a result of the fall, right? We fell in sin, we became unworthy, deserving the hell. Yet at the end of the day, God's gonna say, why'd you fall? And so I think that that's a problematic. Hmm. Don't decree me fall then say, why did I fall? <laughs> I can't reconcile that with scripture. So I'm Man. sure Matt will have Matt. I respect him. He's a wonderful scholar. So I'm sure he'll have a way of trying to reconcile it. And I respect him. <laughs> and, but, uh, but I wanted to focus on that. So thank you, bro, man. I appreciate this. This was great. Awesome, man. Uh, where can people uh, find you, man? Do you have a YouTube page that, that you'd like to promote, a Facebook page that you would like to promote, anything that you would like people to follow you? You got a book coming out? If not, you need to. You know, <laughs> you any, know anything that you want to promote, anything you want to say? I am starting on a book, so you pray for me on that with the help of the Lord. Just starting in the infant stages, so pray for me there. But I am, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Michael Holloway, at Facebook, um, and as well as uh, my YouTube channel is Elder Mike, Your Urban Church. Again, that's Elder Mike, Your Urban Church. So those that desire to follow me uh, can do so there. We appreciate it. I no doubt. Well, as we always say at the end of every discussion, interview, and thing that we do here on Is He a Real One Radio, we like to ask the question, is he a real one? Yes, he is. In the heat that we talking about is Jesus, y'all. A-A-Amen. <laughs> <laughs>